Okay, so the way I've structured my discussion is the book, the whole, the entire book is about salvation. What happens when someone is saved? What does that mean? And then from my perspective, given this idea that um, we're not saved by our works, nor are we saved by our faith, but we're saved by Christ, um, rethinking the role and what the, the New Testament is revealing about saving faith and Christian baptism. Now, you remember the second chapter in the book is called In the Beginning, dot, 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 Baptism. And so what we did is we went through primarily the book of Acts, the Gospels, Mark and Matthew, and then the book of Acts and showed the importance or the significant primary role that baptism played in the early church. I stopped there at the end of the book of Acts and then went into that trajectory using the early church, the writings of the early church. We have a lot of writings from the first, second, third century that confirm that view. So it isn't really until the fourth century that things begin to change. And that's when we moved into the doctrine of original sin, the practice of infant baptism. Those two things together took Christian baptism and saving faith off on a completely uh, different journey from which we've never recovered, in my opinion. Now, in the 1500s, there was a violent reaction to that, and we laid down another trajectory that, in my opinion, was <laughs> it got us on the right track, but it still missed, I think, what's being said in the New Testament, and that's the purpose of my book. Um, so what we'll do tonight is we will go back and look at the New Testament, not looking at the practice or the significance of Christian baptism in the early church, but the role Christian baptism plays from the perspective of later writers, Paul and Peter in particular. Um, they were writing to Christians who had already been baptized. So it's not a discussion of how do you become a Christian by being baptized. It's what happened to you when you were baptized. So to begin our discussion, I want us to go back where we left off last time. This idea that God is one, of course, um, Adonai Elohim, the, the Shema, our God is one. When the Christians came along, and the, the New Testament was revealed, that whole idea kind of got debated a lot, and a lot of people lost their heads over the debate. <laughs> <laughs> so, as we've said many times in this class, it's an idea that kind of stretches human logic. Like I said in my email this week, you know, we say <coughs> one plus one plus one equals three. Well, that's uh, equals one. That is logically impossible given our the categories of our thought. That is a false statement and completely impossible. But what you know, Gary said it many times in here and others have said it, when we come to the, the New Testament's revelation of the nature of God, we can't make it fit into our pre-designated categories of understanding. And so I said, you know, we'll look at it this way. One times one times one 
equals one, right? So maybe if we, in try, instead of trying to figure it out logically, we just come to the text and say, okay, I'm gonna put aside my preconceived ideas, I'm gonna put aside my pre-designated categories of thought, and I'm gonna to try to understand what God is revealing about himself. And here's where we've come. This is the traditional understanding of this, is that God exists and has expressed himself in three persons. God, of course, is one God, but he's made... <laughs> again, I'm just... You're out of language to try to express this. He... He operates as three distinct persons. The idea, as close as I can understand, is the word they came up with is it's sort of like an actor who comes out on the stage and puts on, you know, a mask and plays the role of John Doe. Then he goes backstage and he changes clothing and he comes out with a new mask and he plays the part of Sam Smith. Well, Sam Smith and John Doe are two distinct expressions of the one being. It's the same person, it's the same being expressing himself in the person of John Doe or in the person of Sam Smith. I don't know if that helps, but there's a lot of wording going on. Consubstantial persons, um, hypostases, is the technical word for it. Each person shares identical essence, nature, and properties. Each is eternal, and yet the three persons are distinct, um, but one substance, essence, or nature. And here's uh, the Greek word homoousios. And I don't know if you know this, but I started to put this on here, but I didn't. Um, you know the English expression, um, not differing by one iota? You know where that expression comes from is this debate because if you put an iota between these two omicrons here th that's the iota it's an i in in english um, but if you put the iota here you have a completely different meaning and it means a different nature and that was the huge arian conflict of the early centuries and arius you know, lost his head over the debate um, because he said Christ the Son is not equal to the Father. Christ the Son had a beginning, was a created being. We have groups in Christianity today that say the same thing. And they modify John chapter 1 to support their doctrine. Um, but it's heresy according to the, to the traditional Christian teaching. Okay, do we need to say anything more about that? So what is being said is God expressing himself in these three persons. If, if, the, Christ, if the Christ hymn of Philippians chapter 2 is taken seriously, what it tells us is that God the Son sitting in eternity before his incarnation, existing in the form of God, equal with God, looked down, 
you know, I'm being anthropomorphic here. He looked down and he saw the human predicament. Human beings are forever enslaved by their own lack of faith and disobedience. There's nothing that they can do to, to get themselves out of the situation. And he made a decision. And what the, the language there says and in Philippians 2, he thought to himself, as it were, that remaining equal with God, continuing to enjoy the prerogatives of divinity, would not be the morally right thing to do. And the wording there is very specific. He, he says it would be akin to theft or robbery. Why? Well, because he knows that there is a covenant in play. And what is that covenant? What is the promise that is, that is weaved throughout the Old Testament? Covenant with Abraham, one that Abraham couldn't split up to. Right. This time, they were shaking when God walked between the animals. Yeah, and what is that covenant, Jeb? What are the there are three parts to it. The see the 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 promise actually begins in the garden, does it not? Yeah. With the promise that the seed God will intervene, and through the seed of the woman, He will bring forth a human being that will reverse what's happened in the fall. And then it comes to fruition in Genesis 12, and God says, number one, your seed, through your seed, your, your descendants will become a great nation. They, and we see that at the beginning of Exodus, right? They indeed had become a great nation. They would inherit a specific land, and we see that in Joshua, they conquered that land, but we go back to Genesis 12, and there's one more component of that covenant that remains unfulfilled. And what is that? All mankind will be blessed. Through, through your seed, all Amen. nations of the earth will be blessed. And Paul says, when we get to the New Testament, that's the mystery. The mystery is God is not only the God of the Jewish nation. God is the God of the Gentiles as well. All nations will be blessed. So this one, this member of the Godhead, saw the predicament, knew that there was a covenant in play, made this decision, and so he emptied himself. What does that mean? Kenosis is the word. And the Eastern Church has said a lot more very helpful things about this idea of kenosis uh, that, that the Latin church has. We tend to be very um, uh, very um, what's the word I'm looking for? When it pertains to the law courts, and not heretical but forensic, forensic in our analysis. We, we but they emphasize that it's God's nature, it's God's character, it's God's person. And so what Jesus the Son is doing, he's emptying himself of his 
divine prerogatives. And John says it this way, the word, the logos, the logos, became flesh and dwelt among us, literally tabernacled with us, literally pitched his tent. I mean, think of it, the intimacy. You know how it is when you go camping with somebody, right? I mean, you ever been camping with somebody you didn't really know, and then you camp for several days, you know, you shared a tent or you might share a space, you cook meals together, you share the latrine together, you do things together. What happens at the end of that? There's a certain level of intimacy that's developed, correct? That's what's going on here. God the Son has emptied himself of divinity so that he can participate in the human condition. Hey, Baruch, did you get my text? I did. Okay, so it's in there. Get it on your way out. Okay, thanks. So here's the question. And here's the question. I meant to bring my books and show you, but the question that is being asked alongside of all the questions I'm asking about, you know, Paul's statement that it's the faith of Christ. The question is, while Jesus was on earth, from the time he was born to the time he died, how did he live? And, and the criticism is, you know, we, we rush right to the cross and we talk about his death and his resurrection and all of that's good. But if, if that's all he came to do, then why begin with an infant and live for 33 years? Does that life have anything to tell us about what Christ accomplished? And the answer is yes. And so the question I'm asking is, during this time, was he God pretending to be human? I wish Don were here. I want to hear his answer to this. <laughs> was he just pretending? No. No. And again, the, the revelation that comes to us is he was a real human being. He was really born of a woman. He was really a helpless infant. I mean, he wasn't laying in that manger with divine power. He was susceptible to all of the illnesses that every other infant was. He was susceptible to the, to the rantings and ravings and insanity of, of King Herod. That's why they had to you know, flee to Egypt and protect him. He was vulnerable. He was a real human being. Well, what does that mean? Well, here's the real question. And here, here we're doing well on time, so I want to I wanna get your ideas here. While he was living, how did he do the things he did? Faith. <laughs> well, for example, specifically, if you got my email, turn to Matthew 17. Let's just let's just read that real quick. 
Whoever's got it, read it. 14 through 21. When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire and into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. O oh, believing and perverse generation, Jesus replied, How long shall I, shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of the boy, and he was healed from that moment. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, Why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, Because you have so little faith. I tell you the truth, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. So the, the disciples could not cast the demon out. And they specifically asked Jesus, why could we not cast it out? And what was his answer? Too little faith. Too little faith. So the implication is, Jesus then turns and casts it out. Why could Jesus cast it out? His faith is strong. How many times did he spend praying and fasting? That's Okay. So the argument is, again, you, you know, you don't have to believe it. Uh, just think about it at least. Be open-minded to it, okay? The point is, Jesus was not God pretending to be a human. <laughs> Jesus was God living as a human. And he developed faith the same way any human being develops faith. And he was able to do the things that he did because of his faith. The time that he spent with his father. You know what I envision when I read about that? I envision the relationship that Adam had with God. That close intimacy now, I, I assume that Adam could visually see God. I mean, that's what the story seems to imply. And so the, the second Adam, the last Adam, the argument is, had an even tougher time because he was living in an environment from which God has, had withdrawn his presence. But the point is still valid. He developed that relationship through his faith. And again, going back to the, one of the last points I made last class, right at the end. Jesus, Hebrew writer says, he perfects faith. Doesn't say it perfects my faith or your faith. He, is, he says he is the author and perfecter of faith. Human faith. He brings human faith to a level that no one had ever been able to achieve. Not Adam, not Abraham, not Israel, not David. And because of that, he is the prototype human being of God's new creation. And he is the human being that we're going to see tonight into which we are now joined. 
that severs our relationship with the first Adam and brings us into solidarity with the new Adam. We'll get to that in a minute. Okay, the other one I gave you in, in the, which, what story is this? We won't go read it. Matthew 14, what happens there? So Jesus comes walking on the water. And then what happens? Big storm. Big storm. It's a ghost. And then Peter. And what does Peter do? He steps out on the water. He gets out on the water? Peter's walking on the water? How did Peter accomplish that? Because he kept looking at Jesus. Through the faith of Christ, basically. The power that Jesus had, you might say, reinforced his faith to where he could walk on the water. And then when he starts to sink... He realizes what he's doing. Well, yeah. There's quite a few people in the Old Testament who are able to do some amazing things, like raise people from the dead. Thank you. And they weren't God. So maybe God was working through them. Maybe God was working through Jesus. God, later through the Holy Spirit, enabled the apostles to raise people from the dead. To Wonderful things. You think it's God's power. Because of his faithfulness, Jesus' faithfulness, and all these other people, the power of God can work through them. That's that my, doesn't make them God. Doesn't make them God. And Jesus, at, on the, at the moment that he was born to the time he died and, and ascended and was restored to his father, my argument is he too was a, a human being. He had emptied himself of all prerogatives of divinity. And so he did what he did, not because he was God pretending to be human. He was able to do what he did because he, had, he was human and he had developed perfect human faith. That's the argument. Again, you don't have to agree with it. Just understand that's, that's the argument. And the more I think about it, the more convinced I am that that is true. That's how he becomes our Savior. So, the New Testament a presentation of baptism then. What is it? There's only one example in Acts of a sinner becoming a Christian without being baptized. I should say without, I, I didn't have room. In Acts 17, it's the only place where people are become Christians, followers of Christ, and baptism is not mentioned. It's a, it's a passing remark. What's that? Cornelius' No, this is not Cornelius's. They were received the Holy Spirit before they were baptized. That's Acts 10. But, but it says that they were baptized. Here it actually says they became believers. There were other ones in Athens that became followers of Christ, and Luke does not record that they were baptized. That's all I'm saying. It's the only place in Acts that I can find because Cornelius was baptized. After, the, yeah, after they received. Yeah, the question there is, but okay. So, so the point I'm making is when Paul discusses, or, or Peter, which we'll see, discusses Christian baptism, he's discussing something that has already happened to his readers. So the question is, what happened when I was baptized? What does the Bible say that God did 
when I was baptized. And that's the point. So we go to Colossians. Turn over to Colossians. We're going to go through these. We've got 30 minutes. It's going to be great. All right. Paul follows his customary introduction. I'm not going to do with it, this with each letter, but I want to give us a, a background to what's going on in Colossians. He identifies himself, he identifies his reader, and he offers a prayer for them. Then he goes into a discussion of what had led them to this point. Again, I, I'm, I'm of the opinion that Paul was trained in ancient rhetoric. He knew the principles of how to put together a speech or how to put together a letter because you can find this pattern in all of his writings. And I love it because I'm an attorney, you know, and it's a similar pattern that I was taught. And so you look at 1 Corinthians. Oh, there's his purpose statement right there. And everything else falls into him supporting this one purpose statement. And he does that all the time. And I love it. Um, so what is it in Colossians that is that forms this narration of what what has brought us to this point? Well, first of all, he says, God the Father is at work in the world and within you, you Colossians. So that's the first thing I want you to understand. God has qualified you to share, he says. So the point is, God is at work. As Richard Rogers used to say, from Genesis to the maps, it's about what God is doing. That's what this story is about. He is accomplishing his purpose. Human redemption is God's work, not our work. And we miss that, I think. And that's the, one of the key mistakes that the Protestant Reformation has made. So again, Paul assures us, the Father has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints. And remember that word saints, what does it mean? It means one who's been made righteous, one who has been made holy, the holy ones, the righteous ones. So when Paul calls the New Testament Christians saints, he's reaching back and shaking hands with the Old Testament, the, the, uh, the Torah, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He's shaking hands certainly with Isaiah, and he's saying the promise that God made has come to fruition. What promise did God make? You shall be holy as I am holy. Why? Because you are my people. I have made you my people, which by definition means I have made you holy. Now, the prophets were good at saying, now go live like that. And the people were good at not listening to that second part of the sermon, and God brought a lot of judgment on them. But the basic truth is there. If God makes you his child, by definition, he has made you holy, as holy as he is holy, as righteous as he is righteous. Otherwise, you couldn't be his child, right? Okay. He's rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. So the question is, you know, Paul's worldview, God has broken in on human history. God has established a new creation. The kingdom of light is now at work and existing within the dominion of darkness. So Jesus told the, the parable of the tares. Should I go out there and pull up all those weeds? No. 
God's kingdom is growing among the tares. And so many times our, our, our attempts at evangelism, and we're out there trying to tear up the tares and preserve the, the kingdom, preserve the church, lock the doors, don't let those people in. I mean, I could preach a sermon here, right? When what is it we're supposed to be doing? Looking for those who are willing to embrace the kingdom of light, to live in the world, but come out of the world and no longer be a part of the world. That's what the message is about, right? Okay, so how have the two worlds, how the two worlds interact? There is activity that takes place in the, this realm. It's preaching, it's teaching, it's proclamation of the Word of God. It's hearing the Word of God and understanding its implications. It's, there's believing, there's trusting, there's developing faith in that Word. There's repentance, there's turning from sin, there's confessing of Jesus, Lord of all, God's answer to the sin problem. There's Christian baptism. All of this is critical. All of it is critical. None are more important than the other. But, 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 and here's where we have to be careful. Where is the real action taking place? God. God does the work. The real work takes place on a different realm. I mean, we watch two young people get baptized on Sunday, right? I mean, we saw something happen physically, right? One of them we couldn't hear because the mic didn't work. But, but be, if we could see beyond that, what was God doing? What were the angels doing? Exactly. So that's, that's the background of every one of these. And here's what he says. In Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. That's Colossians 2, verse 9. Now, we normally we stop right there and we wax an elephant about how is that possible, right? And you think we get exercised about that. How do you think the Greeks took that? I mean, if you know something about Greek philosophy, the idea of God indwelling Anything material was, I mean, that was, that was laughable. That was ridiculous, right, Baruch? You look like you have a comment to make. <laughs> well, every mythology I've ever read, though, has a story of the incarnation. Right. And so, yeah, but so that part wouldn't be hard for them to accept, or almost any culture. Right. Um, but right. go ahead. To think that. It just happened once, and that was the guy. Um, that part is pretty offensive. Yeah, pretty offensive to their idea. Well, here's my point. Please don't stop at verse nine. See what God is revealing to you in verse ten. Somebody read it and then put it in your own words. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work 
and increasing in the knowledge of God. You you on Colossians two ten? Oh, I'm sorry. Two ten. I got one ten. I'm so sorry. It's all right. That was good to hear. <laughs> sorry about that. No, you're good. I'm good. only an account. Numbers so <laughs> And you have been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority. You have been filled. Somebody else have a different translation? And in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In Him you have been made complete. NRSV says, and you have come to fullness in Him. What is being said here really boggles the mind. Because what's being said is, in the person, the human being, Jesus Christ, the fullness of the Godhead dwelt bodily. We're going to talk about that in a second. And when you, Christians, who've been baptized into Christ, guess where you are? You are sharing in that fullness. You are participating in God's life. That's what the text says. You have been brought into that same fullness. That's what God is accomplishing in Christ. That's why Jesus being a human being fully is so important to the gospel story. And see, the, the problem with the gospels is somebody said a uh, hundred years ago, the, the gospels, the four canonical uh, stories of Jesus, all they are are a passion narrative with an extended introduction. And, and that idea carried the day for 80 years. So the most important thing, let's just get to the death and the resurrection. And all this other stuff doesn't matter. It's just a buildup to this. And people are saying, no, 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 no. You're missing the point. The narrative of how Christ lived, what he did, and how he did it, has a lot to teach us about how we should be living. And in, in our discussion right now, the, the, the point is, he was a human being who developed perfect human faith. So he's the head over all power and authority. And again, you are participating in that. He, in him, you were circumcised with a circumcision not made by human hands. So now he's getting into his idea of baptism. Your whole self was ruled by the flesh, but it was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. When were you circumcised by Christ? When you were buried with him in baptism. So the idea is when uh, Mike, uh, Mike McKinley put Keegan under the water, Mike put Keegan under the water, what did God do? Put him into Christ. And the idea of circumcision is cutting away the flesh the idea is cutting away the, the tie that Keegan had to the first Adam and uniting him with the second Adam. 
And so when he brought him up out of the water, you know, Keegan's all wet and got to comb his hair and all that. But where is Keegan now? He's in Christ. He is now participating in the fullness of the life of God. So that's... There's also a, a kind of a double meaning there with the circumcision. Because circumcision, when it began in the Old Testament with Abraham, it was a promise and a covenant between Abraham and God. Correct. And so the fact that it's not here, not a physical circumcision, but a spiritual circumcision as well. Exactly. And it's the same promise. It's the same covenant. We're going to see that in just a minute in Peter. Okay, in, also, in which you were also raised with him through your faith. What does our faith do? Does our faith make us righteous? No, it can't. Christ's faith makes us righteous. Our faith is in the working of God. And that's exactly what Martin Luther said about Christian baptism. If you are a Christian and you doubt whether or not you're saved, don't start thinking about how much more you have to do, how many more times you have to go to church, how much better you can be. I mean, it's, that's not the point. What do you do? Martin Luther said, you turn back to what? Your baptism. Because it's there that you entered into a covenant with God. It's there that you appropriated God's promise to yourself. What a beautiful picture of the role of Christian baptism that needs to be recaptured today. All right. What is God up to? Deity lives in bodily form. Two worlds have rejoined. God, what, God, what, what, what was lost in the garden was regained in Christ. God was rejoined to his creation. And in Christ, we have been brought into that fullness. Death has been obliterated, new life has begun, and we are raised into God's life with Christ through our faith in the working of God. So I remember, so in, in Colossians, baptism signifies the convert's conversion from allegiance to the old Adam and the old creation, the dominion of darkness, into allegiance to and solidarity with the last Adam, Christ. We are in union with the new creation, inaugurated by the new Adam who is Lord of all. Entry into the eschatological hope of evil God. That's a, a fancy way of saying we also become members of the church, right? At the same moment. And we are also, in God's eyes, morally transformed into the image of the Son of God. Now, we can't chase that one out. That's book number two, okay? But that's what happens. Go ahead, Steve. You had I'm sorry, else no, I just went wild. The sequel... Yeah. Wow. yeah. And God is the actor. That's the point. Who does it? God does it. He gets the action of all the verbs. And I, I remember Austin, Alan Austin. I always want to call him Austin. Every time I see him, I call him Austin. One of our first classes, one of our very first classes, here's an elder, one of our shepherds. And what did he say to us? He said, man, come on, guys. We don't obey God in the sense that Christ obeyed God. We receive from God his blessings. And I, you know, I said, that's why I love this church. And that's why I love Alan Austin. Because I think the guy gets it. 
It's not about us. It's a free gift that we receive by faith. All right, Peter agrees with Paul. So Peter reveals the instrument of God's action, the how. For Christ also suffered for, once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, the ark, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. Now, what's Peter's point? It's this water that symbolizes <coughs> baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body. It's not a matter of you not taking a bath, but you are appealing it's, it's the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. What does that mean? It saves you by the resurrection of Christ. Look at what Peter says. Baptism saves us in the same way that the water saved those passengers in Noah's ark. There's nothing special about the water. It's an element of this age. It's a part of the dominion of darkness that God is tearing down and restructuring in Christ. But look, look at here. What did the water do? In the days of Noah, it transported those people who were inside the ark to a safe location. My, my buzzer stopped working. A location in which God makes salvation available to all who consent to his re re relocation efforts. Here's my, here's my attempt to draw a diagram. Salvation in this instant comes to those who are in a God-designated location. The water serves as the instrument. Below the water, what happens? If you're above the water, and how do you get above the water? You go where God says to go, correct? We could call this the pass under. <laughs> Bada beam. <laughs> That's good, thank you. Right? But it's the same as the Passover, correct? <clears throat> I mean, this is always how God reveals himself. And the Passover. Where did God say to go? Inside your house. And put the blood where? And then what? Stay inside. Stay there. Don't leave. And trust God's promise, right? If God comes and the blood's on the doorpost, what did he promise would happen? So is my faith in the blood on the doorstep? Well, in a sense it is. Is my faith in what I've done? I'm inside the house? Well, in a sense. But do you really want to exalt yourself in this situation? Where is the power? The power is when I do what God says to do, trusting that God will do what he says he will do. Correct? Yes. Okay. Steve? And eat in, and, in pre preparedness, excuse me, to be moved, ready to move. Right. God says go. That's right. Not just sit there idle. Well, Bob, so everybody that was not in the ark returned to the primordial chaos of the waters. Yeah, Exactly. They, because they weren't willing to agree with God's relocation, relocation plan. I mean, did Noah tell them, get in the ark? Apparently, yeah. He tried. Probably the worst evangelist in the history 
<laughs> Most unsuccessful, right? All right, so let's keep going then, okay? We're going to go a little quicker. We've got about nine minutes. Or what time does your watch say? Because that's fast. I think I've got about 13 minutes. Maybe. So here we go. Just as the body, the one has many parts, but in its many parts, there's so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body. Literally, in one spirit, we were all into one body baptized. So here's the, what's the role of Christian baptism? It puts us into Christ. At the same time, it puts us into the church, right? The, the two things happen simultaneously. Here's the, here's the message I want us to get. Those of us who have, in my opinion, overemphasized the role of the church, okay? I, I don't mind us emphasizing the role of the church as long as we don't thereby de-emphasize the role of Christ, which I think in the past we've been guilty of doing. Because, look, our works don't save us, our faith doesn't save us, the church doesn't save us. And I'm telling you, I've preached enough in congregations where there was, a, there was an unspoken but powerful thinking that, you know, if you made a mistake as the church, you're out. So therefore, you know, if you built a building with a kitchen, you're out. You know, if your preacher said the wrong thing on a certain pet doctrine, you're out. And so it's, it's a witch hunt. You know, I remember after four years of preaching at the first church, I, I didn't even know this was happening. But I got called into the elders meeting. And there was a document, over a hundred page document of all the things that I had said wrong in the time I had been there. And there was a dimension, over a hundred pages. Oh, only. And there was a demand that I be fired immediately because the, the, the soul of the church was in danger because I was a false teacher. That's the mentality. At least I gave you four years. Well, the sad part of that story is I went to another church where I served as a missionary and they had a position. I mean, I was just shell-shocked. It was my first preaching assignment. And so I went up there and had an interview and I got in the room with the search committee. They pulled out that 100-page document. This guy had sent it to them and they didn't even tell me I'm sitting in there, you know, shell-shocked from the last elders meeting, and now I'm in this interview to change places where I thought I was welcome. They pull out that document. I stood up and withdrew my name. I said, look, I, and I almost left the ministry, but I didn't. Yeah, this mentality, it gets in us. And we miss the point. It's God that saves us. Go ahead, Brute. Well, for me, I think a lot of it has to do with our obsession about getting to heaven and not trying to be the creation that Christ has asked us. That we're in already. Right. By God's promise. We're already a part of it. 
I mean, you know, I, I, I love C.S. Lewis's. I mean, basically his point is, you know, if you don't like going to church and hanging out with those people, you're not going to like heaven, right. <laughs> you know, because that's what it's all about. Yes, ma'am. Or it may be what your subject book is about, going to be about, which is really grace and how you walk and the lack of understanding that you don't have to get it all right to stay grace. Thank you. Yeah, we're not yo-yos. We're not in and out of God's grace. We are God's children. God make, Jesus Christ saves us. God makes us righteous based on the faithful obedience of Christ. The moment we're transferred into Christ, at that precise moment, God adds us to the church. The two go hand in hand. And that's what I love about this church. Every Sunday, I'm always impressed when someone gets up to talk about the Lord's Supper. What do they talk about? They talk about, we are family. Welcome to the Lord's table. I had a guy say, you know, he was an elder at a church. And he said, every time a guy came along and wanted to, you know, new to the church, that's the first thing I told him. If you're going to wait on the Lord's table, I'm not going to tell you what to say or how to say it. All I'm going to demand is that at some point you say, welcome to the Lord's table. All are welcome here. We are family in Christ. And if we take Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians seriously, it's, the emphasis is not vertical. The emphasis is horizontal. And if we're excluding people from that table based on their skin color or their social class like they were doing in the first century, Paul's got some pretty hefty things to say to us. Number one, you're not discerning the Lord's body. And he's not talking about the physical body laying on the, hanging on the cross. He's talking about his church. He loves his church. And if you're excluding people on social grounds or skin color grounds, you got some thinking. To do. Okay, let's move along. Let's finish this up. Oh, this didn't work out. Okay, so Ephesians 5, we know that husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her, cleansing her. Who does the cleansing? Washing her. Who does the washing? Presenting her, blameless, without blemish, holy. What's he talking about? He's talking about husbands, how you should treat your wives, but what he's saying is, this is what Christ has done for the church. When he presents you to his father, is he going to talk about all the knucklehead things you did? Of course not. He's going to present you holy and blameless. How is he going to do that? Based on how many times you attended Wednesday nights? No. <laughs> who loved? Who gave himself? Who makes her holy? Who cleanses her? Who presents her? God, God, God. Who gets all the action of all the verbs? God, Titus. At one time, we too were foolish. Here's some verbs we get the action for, right? Disobedient, deceived, enslaved, all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Oh, we get the action of those verbs. Who was foolish? Who was disobedient? Who was deceived? Who was enslaved? Best two, two words in the New Testament, right? But God. But God. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. And how did He save us? He, he saved us through the washing of rebirth, renewal of the Holy Spirit. He's obviously talking about Christian baptism. What's the role of Christian baptism? It's a washing of sin. It's a renewal or regeneration. It's a new birth into new creation. 
It's a, it's a gift of the Holy Spirit. We know all these things, right? I'm just reminding you. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. When you were baptized into Christ, you clothed yourself with Christ. We're, we're not simply kingdom citizens. We're children of the King. We were made children in heaven at the precise moment we were baptized on earth. Don't you know that all of us were baptized into Christ? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Paul never tells us how to become Christians. He tells us what happened when we're when we did become Christians and were baptized. So here's, I want to finish the class. What do we got? Two minutes, three minutes? Go ahead, Benita. No, Sorry. I'm saying one minute. Okay, one minute. Here's my point. And we were talking about this before class, right? Max Lucado's going that way and all kinds of other scholars are coming this way. There's a lot of talk out there that sounds really, really encouraging like this. Furthermore, Paul's specific use of the preposition ace, I taught this, right, expresses an aspect, aspect of the relationship of the Christian to Christ, occurring most often with the words denoting faith or baptism and connoting the initial movement of introduction or incorporation by which one is born into life in Christ. Paul's viewed Christ's death, it's not just his own death, it was the dying of the old Adam, while his resurrection through the glory of God is the rising of the eschatological, the last Adam. The death of the old Adam involves the progenitor of the former humanity. The former humanity is dead. The old creation is gone. It no longer defines us. What defines us? The rising of the new Adam, Jesus Christ. The new life that he gives us in him. In light of the understanding of Christ's death as a representative, a representative death for all, Paul affirms that those who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into, a, into his death. Thus, the baptized belong to the new creation. That Christ, the, the last Adam, inaugurated by his saving death and resurrection, incorporated into Christ by their baptism, they have been entered into his saving death. Paul's intention is introducing baptism is not to emphasize how we were buried with Christ, but to demonstrate that we were buried with Christ. Frank Matera is a professor at a Baptist college, a, a Baptist seminary. He quotes Douglas Moo, who is another professor at another Baptist seminary. What am I saying? I'm saying, folks, in 10 or 15 years, there is going to be a lot of common conversation that we can be a part of about this, the role and the significance of Christian baptism. We ought to be leading the charge. My hope is that we are at least participants in the conversation, okay? All right, we'll quit with that. That fair? Let's quit with that. I'll start there next time. Thank you. Great job. There, there, there are positive things happening in Christianity, and we need to be a part of it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your promise. Thank you for what you, you based on your character and your ability, the, your, the, the fact that you cannot tell a lie. And you made the promise to me, to me and to everyone else in this room who's been immersed into Christ, that it doesn't matter the stupid things that I've done. It doesn't matter the low points of my faith. It doesn't matter the struggles that I've had. 
Those things don't define me. I am who you say I am in Christ. And in Christ, I am a new creature. I am your son. I've been washed. I've been cleansed. I've been brought into your life. And Father, I ask that as we leave here, please give us the strength of faith to live, to live a life that expresses the truth that you promised us of who we are in Christ. Help us to live that way. Not because by living that way we earn it. You've given it to us as a free gift. Now help us respond in an appropriate way to your grace by living lives of love, living lives of grace, living lives of instant forgiveness, living lives of community with each other and with this world to the best we can. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. See you next week. Hey, I'm Eddie White, the senior minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you. I'd like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs every Sunday at 1040 a.m. as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.